Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Coach's Corner. I'm Coach Andrew Poretz from Ingenuity Coaching. I help people to discover and fulfill their passions and greatness. My mission is to inspire and challenge you to dream big dreams and with my coaching help you to manifest those dreams into reality. You can visit my website at www.myfuturecoach.com and follow me on twitter.com slash coachandrew. If you're listening live and you want to call in with a question, the phone number here is 646-929-2893. Again, that's 646-929-2893. You'll be able to listen to the show on the phone, and if you press the number 1, that will let me know you want to ask a question. We also have a live chat room right here on the show page where you can feel free to join in. My guest tonight is Doug Hoffman of ALS Consulting. Doug is a business and leadership coach, and I have called Doug the best natural coach I know. He's a powerful communicator, a man of many skills and talents, and you can learn more about Doug Hoffman at www.alsleadership.com. Doug, are you with us? Uh, Yes, I am, Andrew. Thank you. You're very welcome. How are you on this happy tax day, April 15th? I got to say, terrific. <laughs> it's nice to have April 15th going into the past. It is. I, I didn't have a chance tonight uh, to go down by the big post office, but uh, for those of you who are outside of New York, the big uh, post office on 33rd Street is always quite a scene on tax day. They usually have uh, all kinds of press people and people milling about and free massages and all kinds of crazy. And, you know, I, I suppose probably protesters and all kinds of fun people. It's right around the corner from my office, and uh, I, I get a good taste of that. It's amazing how many people will line up at 10 or 11 o'clock at night on April 15th to mail their things at the last possible moment. That's right, and, and it's probably we could probably come back to that very question later in the show of why do people uh, procrastinate the things that they're uh, afraid of or whatever. So, but enough about that for now. Tell me about Doug Hoffman. <laughs> Tell you about Doug Hoffman. Is there anything specific you'd like to know? Absolutely. Well, I, you, and I've known you for a good long number of years, but we're going to pretend that I don't know you as well as I do because we have to pretend that, that so that people who don't know you can find out more about you. So you, I know you uh, in, in a number of different ways, but in your ALS consulting uh, I know that you're, you're a leadership uh, trainer, and I said leadership coach before, but you're a leadership trainer and business coach. Uh, tell me about uh, how you work as a business coach first. Absolutely. I work with business leaders to maximize the effectiveness of leadership within their organizations. So this is um, you know, entrepreneurs running small organizations, it's uh, the leaders of, of large corporations, sometimes in the public, sometimes privately held, and also I do a significant amount of my work inside the not-for-profit or internationally, it's the non-governmental organization sector. What type of an organization might that be? Well, um, I work... And, you know, currently one of my clients is an organization called the Medical Foundation for the Care of Victims of Torture, which is the largest organization in the world that deals with uh, victims of organized violence in the world. 
and we work inside that organization to maximize the effectiveness of the leadership team, both as a team and as individuals with particular accountabilities that require them generating leadership throughout their departments. Wow. So in the organization, yeah, in an organization like that, we do a lot of we do initial training um, that helps people to see first what it is to be a leader. What is leadership? What does it look like? When, you know, for years, the study of leadership has been the study of what leadership looks like and how to act like a leadership, like a leader, and it. What that has yielded over the last 60, 70 years is an awful lot of people who know how to act like other people who were successful leaders, but don't actually know what leadership is. You know, um, a couple of years ago, a man by the name of Bill George wrote a book called Authentic Leadership and put forth the theory. He's a, a person with a major, major history as a leader in corporate America. And he put forth the, the theory that the key characteristic of leadership is authenticity. That ultimately a leader it begins with someone who knows himself or herself and is able to act as they are nat would naturally act, who communicates based on their personal commitments rather than based on some standard of what a leader is supposed to look like. And it was a revolutionary theory, but a lot of work's been done since then and prior to that that's been published since that really looks at what is leader as itself as opposed to just how to act like one. Hmm. So, so what are some like differences between someone who is trained this way versus uh, the quote-unquote standard look of leadership? <laughs> well, the simple answer is someone who's trained this way is far more likely to be successful, not at just at getting things done, but at generating the kind of leadership inside their organization that has productivity and performance be the norm rather than the exception. Yeah, there's a um, wonderful, wonderful story about a guy by the name of Charles Schwab that you may have heard of. Absolutely. Um, who um, was initially primarily uh, an investor in the world of steel. Mm -hmm. And he went into one of his steel mills. This mill was uh, a, a low-performing mill within his portfolio. It was actually the lowest performer. And he went in, and he didn't really say anything. He said hello to the shift supervisor, and he spent the entire day looking at what was happening, watching things, moving around, just walking through on his own. And everybody was a little twitchy because, of course, the big boss was there. Sure. And at the end of the day, he walked up to the shift supervisor, and this was shift one of three, and he said, how many heats did you do? Now, a heat is a measure of the complete cycle of the operation. And the answer was six. And so Charles Schwab picked up a big piece of chalk, and he wrote on the floor at three feet high the number six. And then he put down the chalk, and he walked away. He left. Well, as that shift supervisor was getting ready to wrap up his shift, shift two supervisor came in, and, and the, the two of them were talking, and he looked down, and he said, why is there a six on the floor? And shift one supervisor told shift two supervisor the story I just told you. Mm-hmm. So 
let's jump ahead to eight hours later, shift three supervisor walks in and is taking over the shift. And there's the passing of all the paperwork and the clipboard and all the other things that go from shift two to shift three. And shift three supervisor looks to shift two supervisor and says, why is there an eight on the floor? <laughs> and the next morning, shift one supervisor walks in, and the first thing he does is he walks over to shift three supervisor, and he says, ten? Ten? You did ten heats? And that mill became one of the highest performing mills over an extended period of time for a long time. So what we ask people in that, in the purpose of that story is not just to tell a story. You don't get to write a number on the floor and make everything better. But when I ask people, what is it that happened? What shifted in that organization that caused productivity to improve? I get a series of different answers. And the answers are, for example, well, a competitive spirit was generated. And people love competition, so each shift wanted to do better than the other. And another answer that I get commonly is there was an implicit threat. If you don't improve your performance, things aren't going to, you know, you're going to be fired or something, the mill's going to mm -hmm. get closed. And, you know, basically those are the two primary answers, and then there are a few others that I get. And so the next question is, so if there's an implicit threat, will performance always increase? And, of course, the answer to that is no. Right. If you create competition, will performance always increase? And, again, the answer is no. So what we study and what we work with with our clients is on identifying the, the root cause of performance. What we know about the chalking of six on the floor is that it caused a shift in how the work environment occurred or was experienced by the people who were participating in that work environment. We don't know exactly what that shift was. But what we do know is that if you're looking to shift in performance in any field of endeavor, how to do that is to shift the way the domain in which performance is occurring occurs to the people performing. Does mm. this make sense? It does. You know, you want to hear the flashback that you just created in my mind? I'd love to. It's <laughs> just reminding me of a time when, you know, when I was a kid and uh, my parents would use either of uh, an implicit threat or causing me or, or hoping that I would compete with my brother for something like, you know, who's going to clean the room? Uh, who, who will be the magic boy to clean the room? Uh, and, and, and most of the time, neither approach was very effective, and I'm wondering what the, what the one that would have been that would have caused the shift. That's actually where well, my mind just went to. Yeah, and and in all likelihood, you know, in any organization, in, and, and a family is an organization, and I refer to an organization really being a network of conversations. Mm -hmm. You know, any organization, any company, any system, any country, it's a network of conversations or agreements about what we are and what we're committed to. So 
in, in any of those, there is access through some conversation to a shift in performance. And what that shift in performance is, is defined by how the, the world is already occurring to the people who are there. So what are some of the techniques or do you have any uh, secrets that you might share with us on how you might cause a shift like this to occur? Yeah, I have to, I'll, I'll give you the big secret. It's, 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 a, it's a really tough one. And because ultimately, and I say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek and <laughs> in, in another way, seriously, I believe there is only one great secret answer, and the answer is listening. You know, if, if, if I listen carefully enough, I can always hear what someone's committed to. And if I know what they're committed to, I know what they need to see the opportunity in performance. Mm. Different for everybody. Sure. And in, in organizations, often there is a culture. It's like a tribe that exists. And each tribe has their own, you know, has their own uh, agreements. So you can move entire tribes. So another fabulous book um, I'm a real fan of. It's called Tribal Leadership um, by uh, Dave Logan, John King, and Haley Fisher Wright. Um, it's a, from the Warren Bennis um, Leadership Book series. And in Tribal Leadership, they talk about how um, organizations are made up of tribes, and cultures are made up of tribes. And each tribe has its own culture, its own beliefs, and its own expectations. And if you can recognize where a tribe is, you can actually recognize the, ac the access points to making a shift. Mm. So when I work, for example, with a nonprofit that's committed to eliminating torture in the world, we have a very different conversation than I do, we do when we work with a company that distributes a million pounds of sushi a year. Hmm. Essentially, in both situations, leadership is committed to leaving this place better than they found it. And yet, how they see themselves doing that is different than if it and what it takes to actually gain access that, to that is listen. So when I work with an organization like this, we begin by with, with conversation, and then we continue through training in the distinctions of leadership. I don't think you can really contend with leadership powerfully if you don't begin by talking about what is actually a leader. Tell us. <laughs> you know, it's interesting if you ask, Yes, 50 people, you'll get 50 different answers. And most of the answers historically have been um, a leader is like a manager, only better. Mm. And it's terrible. It's, 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 it's a, a terribly destructive way of looking at what is leadership and what is management because leadership is never successful without management and management is never successful without leadership long term unless the mandate on management is to produce what we already know how to produce with great consistency and assuming no extraordinary circumstances. So if you have an assembly line, what you need once it's up and running is you need management to operate it. Management can be successful at that without leadership. 
leadership cannot be successful in any kind of predictable way without management. So we define leader as an ordinary human being with two things. One is a commitment to produce a result whose realization would be extraordinary given the perceived current circumstances. I'm going to say that again. Please do. A commitment to produce a result whose realization would be extraordinary given the perceived current circumstances and the integrity to see this commitment through to its realization. So I'll give you an example. JFK stands up in front of the American people and says, we're going to put a man on the moon and back to Earth safely by the end of the decade. The next thing he says is, and we really have no idea how to do this. Mm. Now, he could have said that as a pipe dream. Lots of people say things as pipe dreams. It was very, very common these days that people say, you know, just speak your dreams into existence, and I don't mean to invalidate that. I will add that. We speak them, and we take actions in accordance with their fulfillment. So right. what, what JFK did was first he said it, and then he operated from the commitment that that would happen. So the commitment to it happening, that's the distinction that created his leadership? Well, the commitment to produce a result whose realization would be extraordinary. Literally, to produce what cannot be produced based on what we already know. Hmm. So when JFK made that commitment, he set in motion a series of operations and endeavors, many of which required leadership, many of which required management. Before we go on, let me, let's, let's distinguish management just briefly. Okay. I won't, I won't effectively define management, um, but I will talk a bit about how it works. Management is about getting things done that we know how to do. It involves planning, budgeting, organizing, staffing, controlling, and problem solving, timelining and tracking, observing. It's about making sure that everything that needs to happen to fulfill on the commitment is in place and happening. And management can't address certain things. So when leadership and management work together, as in that example, the first thing that happens is we start taking actions in accordance with the commitment that we know how to take. Well, we need some place to do this research. So let's build a building. And they planned to build NASA. And they designed the building and they put the building construction into a system of management. And then they track all the different things that need to be accomplished in order for this building to be completed on schedule. They put the overall project of sending a man to the moon and back into a management structure. And by doing that, they identified both everything they knew how to do and put it into action and everything they didn't know how to do and put it into inquiry. 
And it's that domain of inquiry or invention that is the domain of leadership. And which is the domain of management? Uh, getting things done. Getting things done. Now, are are these are the people who are managers and the people who are leaders are they always different? Absolutely not. Very often, leadership and management is is sourced in the same place. And most of us have strengths in different domains. It's part of why it's so important that we don't undervalue one or the other. Hmm. You know, leadership and management will very often have conflicts, <laughs> and their conflicts tend to be over um, risk tolerances. Okay. You know, um, the balance between the two sides is extremely, extremely important and can't happen if either side is invalidated. So it's often, it's not at all unusual that successful leaders have some management skills or have tremendous trust in someone who has great management skills. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, since you, you train leadership, now they're, they're, I hear about people being called born leaders. How much uh, uh, can somebody who's really not ha- does not have a history of leadership or a seeming propensity for leadership, can that person develop leadership? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, what, what people are talking about uh, what, when they talk about born leaders is generally less about leadership and more about social intelligence. There's a, a fabulous article in, uh, that came from the Harvard Business Review. I don't have the citation available and can't bring it up right now, called The Biology of, of uh, Social Intelligence. And it talks about um, a phenomenon that's been studied extensively by modern neuroscience. that is simply referred to as mirror neurons, which is the ability... I'm going to give a brief, inaccurate, and terrible description of what uh, mirror neurons are, okay? Okay. Um, And it's it's all that I have available at the moment. Um, I I gave up my, my intentions towards a career in neuroscience in uh, 1984. <laughs> All right. And, uh, so, I, 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 so I don't have it at my fingertips, and, but I'll, I'll give you something quick. So in, in the human brain, there are neurons that fire based on uh, a response to something that we experience outside of ourselves. So, for example, if I'm a skier... And I, you know, like, I know skiing. I love skiing. And I look up at the mountain or I watch on my television set somebody skiing beautifully. And I have a, power, I have a powerful social intelligence. The neurons that will fire in my brain are the same neurons that will fire if I'm actually skiing. Mm. You wonder sometimes, or at least I've wondered often, why people get so engaged in watching sports. What's happening is the mirror neurons in their brain are firing as if 
They were throwing the touchdown pass. They were skiing down the mountain. They were in the fight in the boxing ring. And they're getting, no, albeit it's not all of them. They're not actually throwing punches in the boxing ring, nor is this the wind in their face. But there's a whole region of their brain that's actually functioning as if they were there. And individuals have different degrees of access to this. Is that the same thing that works with adult entertainment? That's an excellent question. And I, I, you know, I don't have a definitive answer, and it's a reasonable assumption. That could be why you know porno is so uh, uh, popular, for much the same reason as sports, in in that arena. Very interesting. I I I I haven't really thought of it. Well, I went there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for going there. You're welcome. So much of the time when people talk about natural leaders, they're talking about social intelligence. You know, I've I've spoken with a number of people who spent time working with or speaking with Bill Clinton, and what they always said is when they talked to Bill Clinton, they felt like they were the only person in the the room. Mm. They were the only person who was there. And we all have experiences of being with someone who immediately, the second they turned to us, the second we were in communication, we were what was there. And that's an expression of social intelligence. There's something that's going on there that is distinct, and it calls on something in us. There's a very powerful social intelligence there, and to some extent that can be trained, and I don't know to what extent. Is social intelligence the same as charisma, or is that something else? Um, it's, they sound very similar to me, and I don't know the answer. Okay. What I suggest is that when we're talking about natural leaders, most of the time we're talking about people who have social intelligence, hmm. which is distinct, actually, from leadership and is a tremendously valuable characteristic for a leader to have. I would suggest that on a strong leadership team, there's usually some social intelligence. It doesn't necessarily have to be the person in charge. So you could have somebody who's not uh, blessed, shall we say, with native social intelligence, but who has other attributes that can be developed into leadership. Absolutely. Absolutely. A person can be, uh, I suggest that virtually anyone can be an effective leader. And ha- and no one can be an effective can generate truly effective long term leadership by themselves. Leadership, I say, is a team sport. Well, that's a great quote. I'm writing that down. Leadership is a team sport. Is that did that come from you just now? Yes. Okay. Well, that's going to be quoted with your name. When I when I when I tweet it, okay then. Okay, <laughs> oh, that's a very good one. Leadership is a team sport. I like that. Okay, so so tell me first of all, how how did you get to be this guy? How did I get to be this guy? Okay, so <laughs> quite simply, I I. I wanted a lot of things, and I failed at a lot of things. I, I started my first business. I was seven years old. 
And what happened was my family had moved to a, a, a new neighborhood about three years before. And for two years, ev- uh, every couple months, somebody came by the house with a van and offered to sharpen all the knives in the house. And they would go door to door. They would go to all the houses in our community who lived in Westchester County, and they would go to all the houses, and they would sharpen the knives. And then one year, they just didn't show up. And I remember my mom making a comment, wow, the knife sharpener's not here. I don't know what to do. And at that point in my life, I was experimenting with electronics. I was playing with little electric motors and such. And so what I did was I took apart a whole series of abandoned appliances in our house and actually found this little electric motor in, uh, I think it was an old dryer. And I wired up that and a series of batteries and a plug-in device. So I had a battery-operated device and a plug-in device in my in little red metal toolbox, <laughs> all out of parts that I bought for 15 and 20 cents at the local hardware store and made a a knife sharpening setup. And I started going door to door every day after school. And I became known as the knife sharpening guy. And I would go out after school as long as I did my homework first and I had to be home by dark and I would sharpen knives and then one of my friends joined me and he came out and he learned how to sharpen the knives. So he would sharpen the knives and I would go knock on the other doors and get us business ahead of schedule. And it wasn't very long before we couldn't really keep up with the demand, so we had to bring someone else into it. Wow. And so I was running this little business. And then somebody asked me if I wanted to sell greeting cards, and I, I, you know, I knew every neighbor, so I asked someone, one of my, my other friends, how about you go sell greeting cards and I'll supply you. And so now I had these two little businesses. And that was by the time I was about nine years old. And by the time I was 12 or 13, there would be these gatherings. We pitched a tent in my backyard, and then in my next-door neighbor's house had a, had a room above the garage we would meet in, and we'd send people out on all these missions. And it was my little enterprise. And, um, and I've always done that. I've always launched businesses. I've always um, uh, had other people in the game of you know, making money and doing things. And I've always really enjoyed it. And at the same time, I've also always loved uh, the sense that I was giving them access to something they didn't have, that they were being left empowered, whether it was people I was working with or my mother suddenly having sharp knives again. (laughs) I always wanted to make a difference. You know, I would hear that something was missing and I would get excited about it. And... You know, like I think most entrepreneurial-spirited uh, people, I, I made a lot of mistakes, <laughs> and I learned from them, and you stayed in the game. And it was many, many years later. You know, in the, in the meantime, I spent a lot of time studying psychology and um, went to uh, – right out of high school, spent time at Rockefeller University in, a, in the neuropsychology department and really became fascinated with what actually causes people to work, you know, what makes the difference. Um, was never really interested in, in emotional illness, was very, very interested in what's the connection between the brain and the body and how do things work together. Um, 
but impatient. So I didn't become a psychotherapist. Instead, I started a business. <laughs> did, you, did you ever look into neuro-linguistic programming? Um, I have. I have a number of colleagues who've, who've uh, studied and who train others in it. Um, I've read books, and that's as far as I've gone with it. Yeah, that would seem a, like a, a natural a natural fit. I've I've talked about that to some extent on this show. I've had some people who have spoken about it, and it's definitely something I'm looking into. It's fabulous work. Yeah, it's it's fabulous work that has really been um, at the source of a lot of what we now know as mainstream, commonplace um, personal development. Great. By the way, we have somebody with a question on line two. So, person on line two, I'm going to put you on. Hold on, please. Oh, am I Hello. line two? Yes, line two. Do you have a question for Doug? Yeah, I uh, I came into the conversation late, and uh, I was uh, wanted to get a little clarity, if I could, on people's innate ability of leadership. Uh, I know that there's trains of schools of thought where leadership can be uh, developed and uh, learned intellectually, but uh, I got this, I, I was a little bit confused by leadership as a team sport, but leadership is something everyone can learn. Hmm. So I was, I was kind of, uh, you know, because I also know it's, it's innate in some folks. So I was hoping you could clarify that. Yeah, fabulous, fabulous. Thank you for asking that question. You did, you did miss a piece of the conversation. What, what I suggest is that what's known as innate or natural leadership is a matter of social intelligence rather than leadership itself. And so I suggest that, that, that social intelligence... Go ahead. I'm sorry, the social intelligence, is that innate? Well... Certainly modern neuroscience uh, seems to feel that that is. Not that it can't be cultivated or developed, but that there, is a certain, there are certain neurological phenomenons, phenomenon that are innate um, and can be measured. And the way we experience them is as social intelligence, an ability to interact with people that leaves them um, inspired, excited, motivated, et cetera. Can you, uh, and, and I don't know if this is even possible, but I've, I've met a lot of people who have uh, gravitas, charisma, social intelligence, uh, whatever you might, might call it, who uh, it, it's seen by other people, but they themselves don't see it or they're unable to acknowledge their own uh, gifts. Uh, can, you, can you maybe speak because of that uh, disconnect? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm happy to. It, it, we're all trained. We're trained to look at ourselves particular ways. We're trained to think of ourselves in particular ways. And there are entire communities of people who are brought up being told you're the greatest in the world and here's what's great about you and you're going to be the next you know, leader of the modern modern society, and there are other people who are trained, um, you know, uh, be humble, be quiet, be be peaceful. To think of yourself highly is to be is is shameful. 
you know, people are trained to look at themselves in a particular way. And they're not always, it's not always as overt as I just described. Um, and we've all had experiences of revealing our gifts and getting different types of responses to those gifts. You know, I, I personally remember an experience when I was uh, eight years old of, um, I was a violinist. And at eight years old, I played in Carnegie Hall. And I was one of you know, 200 students who were the Suzuki violinists of the world playing in Carnegie Hall. And what I experienced was I was one of the, the least capable performers on that stage. And I knew it. I mean, there were kids there who were world-class musicians already and barely older than I was. And I played well, you know, compared to people who didn't play. So when there was press about this and I started getting attention, where I went with it, the way I interpreted it is I'm getting attention I don't deserve and it's shameful and I'm not going to do that anymore. And I created a model for myself that is I'm not going to be great because if I get great, if I'm noticed for something, it's not true, it's shameful. And I built years of hiding on top of that. So when people started, as you're describing, recognizing leadership characteristics in me and forcing me into positions of leadership in organizations, I resisted it until my trust in them was bigger than my commitment to hide. And when that happened, I began to actually take on leadership. And it started for me inside nonprofit organizations and places where I could say that it was noble and thereby justify actually coming out of the closet as a leader. Is, are you, is this responsive? Yeah, it is. I, uh, I, 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 get, I was just musing about how Bob Dole would always refer to himself in the third person. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that that probably is, is a living example of what you're speaking to. Yeah. Yeah, people have all sorts of funny ways of interpreting themselves as leaders. You know, and some people are striving and strive. All they want is to lead. And other people, all they want is to not lead. And you know, whichever of those extremes is present, there is, I suggest, for lack of a better term, a pathology behind it. What's probably more accurate is there's a story, something that they were taught, that they're holding on to as if it's the truth. That's limiting what's available. For some people, it's limiting the ability to not be the leader, and for other people, it's limiting the ability to lead at all. Would, uh, and maybe this is a question for, for Andrew, would, would this be a question of where neuro-linguistic programming would come in, to sort of rewrite the hard disk? Well, I don't know enough about it to answer that question. That's, that for me, that's something that I'm I'm intrigued by. I've, I've uh, you know, I'm a big fan, for example, of Anthony Robbins, who uh, was trained in in NLP and uses some form of it in his work. So I've I've encountered it and I've seen the results of it. So I find it very intriguing. But I, I wouldn't know how to answer that question. I'm not I, I'm not that uh, that knowledgeable. Well, I mean, as a coach, would you just say? you know, fake it till you make it kind of thing or, or 
chant a mantra in the mirror uh, every day? Would, would well, I, I'm a big believer in, in, well, I don't know about chanting a mantra, but certainly uh, uh, speaking things into existence using uh, positive self-talk, using um, uh, affirmations, and those things have to be, you know, uh, done over and over again to, until they start to replace the negative thoughts. Okay, which I guess in and of itself would be neural linguistic programming. Well, I'm sure that that uh, when it, when 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 all is said and done, I will find out that I've been doing all sorts of things and didn't know it. <laughs> yeah, NLP is definitely one of the techniques for doing as you're describing, rewriting the program. Absolutely is, and has been proven to be extremely, extremely successful and effective. And there are many others. And in working with people who are charged with leadership or charged with management or charged with being part of a team responsible for leadership and management, um, we regularly have to contend with the stories from the past that are interfering with their ability to see the future, interfering with their ability to be effective. In... um, uh, Tracy Goss's book, The Last Word on Power, um, Tracy talks about how organizational uh, reinvention, as in creating a new future for an organization, creating a break from the pattern that an organization is stuck in, begins with actually uh, a personal reinvention in the leadership team. And it can't happen without you know, most organizations are built on what she refers to as the winning strategy or winning formula of their principles. You know, the few things they know about themselves, the stories they know about themselves. And as such, these are the, the patterns that they use, the things that they use in order to be successful in the world. And they've used them their whole lives and they don't know any other. And it's that we're talking about highly competent, highly capable people. Like imagine a master carpenter who has in his possession a hammer, a tape measure, and a saw. This master carpenter can build you a great house with those tools. But if you, if you ask for something beyond a house, or if you ask for the house on a given timeline, it might behoove that carpenter to gain access to other tools. And a winning strategy prevents access to any other tools. So we actually have to dig in. We have to look at what is that strategy, why is it in place, and what else might be available. And the shift that happens when a leader gains access to their winning strategy as a, ser- a series of possible tools rather than the only, th- only tools they have in their possession is instantaneous. And we see exponential growth in companies. We see people changing industries, and extraordinary results happen when that becomes revealed. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me that you mention this on an organizational level. I'm, I'm actually trained as an organizational psychologist. And I would say it seemed to me that one of the uh, consistent things that uh, serves organizational change 
is your standard cognitive behavioral approach vis-a-vis uh, -vis the reward system? Um, is there a way to adjust an individual's reward system to uh, cultivate their own leadership ability? <laughs> it's actually where we started in the conversation. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to recap completely, but I will say that that I believe that performance... No, it's quite all right. That performance is always a factor of how the performers are experiencing the world. I'll give you an example from my own life. I'm a bicyclist. And what I do for recreation for some strange reason is I go on long bicycle rides. And I like to stretch myself beyond what I know I'm capable of. So last year, I, um, when, when what I was capable of was going for a 30-mile ride or a 40-mile ride, I made a commitment to ride in this race through the Adirondacks that was 138 miles. And in the middle of that race, well, not in the middle, near the end, I was at about 111 miles into this event, and I'm going up a six-mile hill. And I became absolutely convinced that I was destroying my body. I was doing something stupid. This was a terrible thing to do. There could be nothing worse. And what I really needed to do was grab my cell phone and call the person who was doing support for me and get picked up and pulled out of there. <clears throat> and I figured, okay, that may be the conclusion, but I'm just going to wait a couple minutes. And I had this thought pop up into my mind that was, very simply, I've been in more pain than this before. And I started laughing. And I realized that the whole story that this was a terrible thing to do was just one of many stories that I could choose. And the story that I chose to replace that one was, wow, I've almost done it. This is great. And I took on that new story, and the last 24 miles were the second tw fastest 24 miles of the entire event. My tiredness basically went away. The pain went away completely. And I had the time of my life riding the hardest section of the course at the end of the course. It was very simply, I just told myself a new story. And I'm practiced at that. You, you know, I, uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with this. There's a show on NPR called Radio Lab. Yes. Um, and and they, they just did a show recently uh, entitled Limits. And Wasn't that sure. wonderful? Did you, so so uh, the, the neat thing about this is that they were actually talking about uh, that, that psychology. Uh, in, in, a, in a race. Uh, and they, they talked a little about the, the, the race across America, which is often referred to as the hardest race in the world. That's a little bit more extreme than the game that I play. <laughs> um, but and here I'm just a doing a, uh, and I'm just going to do 42 miles on May 2nd, and I'm now feeling uh, like a, like a five-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, 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 that's a story, too, I think, my friend. Oh, okay. <laughs> 40, 42 miles is pretty significant, you know. Uh, I it's huge. Uh, it's huge. Yeah. Uh, m m most folks don't even do that. This is uh, true. 
and you know, human accomplishment is always is always a matter of where I go from where I start. Yes. Certainly. You know, if 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 what I'm doing to you know, it, it's been said commonly if you can run if you can run 13 miles, you can rate, you can finish a marathon. Because the context changes when you're actually in the event. Sure. You know, and um, you know, so for your 42 mile event, it's it's about where you are now and how much of a stretch that is for you, and it's going to call on the same resources that what's his name Rubric. Um, uses to complete a race across America. Mm. One of the men who were, was interviewed on that show it was almost disturbing how committed he was. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm uh, and I know like right now I am uh, what what about two weeks, three weeks away from that, and it is definitely a stretch. And I, yeah. I was thinking about that today. I rode seven miles, and I'm thinking forty-two miles. Well, every mile I'm doing, I'm thinking. Do that 40 more times. <laughs> and I can do it in increments of one, and it'll, and it'll happen. Yes, exactly, exactly. You know, in a very recent, in an event that I did recently this past weekend, it was a 128-mile um, event. You know, I got to a point where I had had a lot of mechanical challenges, and I was... I was really feeling like I had nothing left. And then I looked at my cue sheet and I realized I've got 14 miles to go. I can always ride 14 miles. And it was that shift that we're talking about, you know, from can I finish a 128-mile ride to can I ride 14 miles? Mm. The answer is, of course I can ride 14 miles. I can crawl 14 miles if that's what it takes to finish this thing. And it was pretty close. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, Andrew, you might want to listen to this show on Radio Lab because the, the, they talk exactly about uh, how to get beyond that, uh, that psychological hump. So it's called Radio Lab and the show is Limits? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I can actually send you the link, Andrew, to it. Oh, terrific. And, you know, what I'm doing, I, every time you, you mention a book, Doug, I'm writing down the title so I could locate it. And if it's on Amazon, I'm actually going to attach the, the book to, the, to your show page. And I will also put up any of the uh, – I will when you get me, give me that link, I will also add that to the, to the blog for the page. Fabulous. You know, there's something that I'd really recommend that, that, that people read. If they're, if they're interested in this conversation about leadership – um, and particularly um, the distinction of what is leadership and how does it work <clears throat> such that you gain access to causing shifts in the performance of leadership. There was an article that was written by um, a, a close friend and colleague and a colleague of his called A New Model of Leadership. And you can find it if you go to my website at alsleadership.com. Um, on the, the right side, there's, a, there's you know, little blog stuff, and you can click on and there's a link to get the latest copy because sometimes it's, it's uh, revised. But it was written by Alan Scher, who's the founder of my firm, 
and someone who's been in the, the field of leadership training since uh, the early 1970s and was really involved in the creation of a lot of the work that's at the foundation of the modern construct called transformation and organizational transformation. And uh, Michael Jensen, who is uh, Jesse Isidore Strauss, Professor Emeritus of Harvard Business School and among the most influential economists on the planet today. Uh, and the two of them really take apart what is leadership. And they give examples including NASA and, and what happened at NASA and what the ingredients of leadership are and how it gets to rely on management and what structures need to be in place for leadership to be functional. If someone's interested in leadership, I consider it probably the best 35 pages of reading you could do. Now, and let me ask you this, because uh, one of the people I've read about leadership, I'm wondering if you think this guy is completely in a different uh, way of looking at things, or if this is old school. Are you familiar with John C. Maxwell? Um, somewhat, yes. And uh, is he uh, an old school view of leadership? You know, I, I, I really don't know enough to answer that question. Okay. He's one of the books I, I'm know, sitting up here. One of the things that's very hard for me in life is to say, is is to not be able to give an answer that's got value. Sure. That's fine. <laughs> and it's become very liberating for me. This is one of the things that I had to contend with. Remember, we were talking about winning strategy before. One of the elements of my winning strategy is always have a good answer. You know that was how I learned to deal when it's when I you know when I was in 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 junior high school. You know the teacher terms to me always have a good answer, <clears throat> and and I've developed that my whole life, and I've gained such freedom from developing. I won't say mastering, but I'm dancing on the edge of mastering the art of saying I don't know. <laughs> And ironically, Doug, that's a great answer. Yeah. As it so turns out. <laughs> As it so turns out. But what a disruption to have to confront that in myself. And that, I say, is exactly the nature of the work of transforming organizations. Is you have to, you know, part of it is always having leadership confront what stops them. Got it. So we are in our final uh, few minutes here on Coach's Corner. So now will be a good time to let people know what you're up to, where they can find you, anything else you want to let us know. Okay, fabulous. Well, <laughs> what I'm up to, I, I, I work with um, some just incredible, wonderful, wonderful organizations and human beings. You know, each one of my clients is somebody who I've, whom I've gotten to know and with whom I've developed a real relationship, and I, I have a personal commitment to their being successful. And I say successful not from some sort of arbitrary standard of success looks like this. We all have our own standards. We all have our own measures. And for some of them, it's about um, the freedom to spend the next 30 years of their lives traveling 
and they never want to work more than 10 hours a week for the rest of their lives, or they want to sell their businesses, or whatever it is. But whatever success looks like, that's what, you know, I'm invested in their success. And my clients range, as I said, from, um, you know, an, an Internet entrepreneur who, who came to me um, having a, a series of products that he had pretty much mastered selling online, and we developed a model for him creating new products, inventing new things, and gaining access to other people's inventions. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, his, his, over a period of nine months, we um, increased his gross sales by approximately 400%, and that number has stayed steady ever since. We stopped working after 11 months. Um, we completed the project that we were committed to and went on to you know, the inventor of kosher sushi, um, who's an amazing and wonderful and generous human being and, and um, uh, does business all over the world, and nonprofit organizations and um, international non-government organizations. So I, I'm always excited about meeting new people and finding out what they're looking to accomplish in their life. And um, so, so that's what I'm most interested in. Mm-hmm. And the best way to reach me is probably to, to, to go to my website, which is, again, www.alsleadership.com or send a message directly to me at doug at alsleadership.com. And, um, you know, I I would say that that, that I will absolutely meet with and talk to anyone who has an interest in something in their business um, once, and I promise that that meeting will be one of the most valuable meetings they've ever had in their life, and it will bring lasting value to their business, to their personal life, and to whatever they're committed to. Wow, that's a, that's a great promise. And one thing I know about you, that is true. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Well, we have come to the end of another Coach's Corner. I want to thank everyone for listening. Thank you, Doug Hoffman, for being my excellent guest tonight, and we will be back Next week with my personal mentor, C. Anthony Harris, next Thursday night. And we will see you, as C. would say, on the beaches of the world. Thanks for listening. Good night. Good night.